Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, my guest is Alan Patrickoff. He is first and foremost a friend because his son and daughter-in-law and their kids are dear friends of ours. But also, he is a great inspiration to me. Alan Patrickoff is an American investor. He is one of the earliest pioneers of venture capital in private equity industries. He founded Apex Partners in the 1960s while trying to get to Woodstock, which we'll talk about later. And then he started Greycroft later, and at age 85, rather, just a couple of years ago, he started his third venture firm, Primetime Partners, which we're going to focus on today. That is an organization that focuses on investing in products, services, technologies, and even media for the quote-unquote ageless generation for those over 50. He has been involved in such investments as AOL, Office Depot, New York Magazine, and more. He's also an active philanthropist, an investor. He gets involved in political races, and he's a, also a supporter of culture productions and an all-around bon vivant. So with that, I say welcome to The Caring Economy, Alan Patrickoff. Thanks for inviting me, Toby. It's, I'm looking forward to the conversation. And we're also going to talk about your new book, No Red Lights, which speaks to me in so many ways about living life to its fullest. But Alan, give our listeners a, a two-minute synopsis. I know it's hard to do with your accomplished life. Of your life, where did you grow up? How were you raised? Where did you study? How did you get where you got? 87 years in two minutes. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you it in, as, uh, as they do in the uh, audible terms, uh, at two times. <laughs> the... Uh, I grew up in New York. I went to school in New York. My parents uh, were immigrants. Uh, my father came from just outside of Kiev, and my mother came from uh, a town in Belarus. They came over here as a result of the pogroms at that time in 1907 and 1913. But I uh, went to Ohio State as a college, not because I chose it, because I got there by default, uh, but it ended up being a reasonably good experience. From there, I went hunting for a job, and in those days, they weren't headhunters out, and, and they weren't recruiters out at, at Ohio State, for sure, and I wanted to go to Wall Street, so I what I did is I walked the streets, literally walking yep. from building to building, taking an elevator up to the top floor, walking down the stairs, and uh, I started at 110 Wall Street, because I knew I wanted to be in finance. And uh, I ended up getting a job at 63 Wall Street. So you can figure I went through a certain number of buildings to get there. I was very fortunate that I got a great first job by accident. I never should have gotten it because I was recruited by a Yaley. And there was there's two partners were uh, very prominent people who had been at Goldman Sachs. I think by accident they took me because I was, you know, a hayseed in effect from Ohio State. Uh, not what you would normally get. Uh, what you would hire. I'm from Ohio, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Today they'd be hiring uh, Harvard Business School graduates, but I got in. I did while I was there. I doubled up and uh, got an MBA from Columbia. Well, my first job, and I went on to have a second, third, fourth job, all moving up. And I was actually recruited in uh, four of those, all four of those jobs. The, the time I started my own business, which was at the December 69, uh, January 70, I had noticed that a lot of private family groups uh, were invested, they 
primarily invested in public stock, just like I, I had worked for a family group, not my family. And uh, what happened whenever it was a private investment, they kind of shoved it in a drawer and they didn't. They did it out of default because someone they knew pushed them into it, not because they really wanted to invest. They didn't do any analysis. And I was the only one in the, this organization that liked the idea of private companies because you really could get close to the company instead of just buying uh, something on the stock market yeah. where you buy and sell. We Once you invest in a private company, you become a partner. So I started a firm to service high net worth families and individuals. And uh, I had nine clients. The 10th client was a fund uh, that I formed of two and a half million dollars and uh, jumped forward, brought in and went to Europe in 1976 uh, and added an operation in London and France and Paris. And then a couple of years later, we added one in Germany, Switzerland and, and Spain uh, and uh, take it through to where I left it in 2002, three around that period of time. We were it went from two and a half million under management to 75. Well, that's not true. 30, 30 billion. Today, it's 75 billion dollars under management. Uh, and I changed the name from Alan Patrickoff Associates to a Apex. Alan Patrickoff Associates, the X was for international or cross border, however you want to portray it. And uh, it was a very exciting journey. But what happened is that as we got bigger and bigger and bigger, we slowly started leaving the venture capital world. That much money under management, you can't really make quarter of a million or half million dollar investments. You have to really think in terms of 10, 20, 50 million dollar investments. And uh, so I took a few years off uh, to help the World Bank and the IFC and some charities in developing entrepreneurial uh, projects around the world. And, primarily Africa, but also South America, China, India, uh, which was a very exciting time of three or four years that I was doing that. Uh, during that time, I uh, was fortunate enough to be a Democratic nominee to the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is uh, a very interesting foreign aid organization of the US government. I got reappointed there. And in 2006, I decided I'm going to go back in the venture business. And I decided to start Graycroft and I set it up so it could only be a venture capital firm because I had been through that. And I and I set up with certain principles that I had learned from my experience in running uh, and building Apex uh, that there were a way to run the business. I thought that was more conducive to the kind of companies and the kind of investments we were going to make. And uh, I did build it from in that case, we started with seventy five million dollar fund. A little, little later than than 1970, and uh, uh, about two or three years ago, I decided that Graycroft was starting to get so big that we were kind of losing that personality, yeah. and we went from 20 or 30 people to 65 people, uh, and all the administrative overhead and support group, uh, and because of our success, and it's it's done fabulous, and uh, they started becoming more of a growth. Uh, equity firm putting in larger size investments. And so I decided that maybe I do something new. And I've been intrigued for the last four or five years by the fact that there are so many of us <laughs> that are getting along in age, but are full of energy, 
and, uh, and, and have a long life ahead of us, uh, just like you and yeah. myself. I still am very active uh, physically and mentally. And, uh, and so I started looking into that. I also found out that the fastest growing part of the population is people over the age, actually over the age of 60. There'll be more people over 60 in 2030 than will be under 18. And uh, I got together with a woman uh, partner who was also fascinated with the same subject. And we uh, decided to start a firm and we started Primetime Partners. We started with $50 million in this case because it's a new concept. There's no one else really around investing primarily yeah. in this area. And we've been in business two years. We've made 25 investments and we uh, set ourselves out to become thought leaders in the in ageless space. generation. And yeah. so I don't know if it was two minutes or five minutes, but that that's the story <laughs> of my life as, as short awesome. as I need to tell it. No red lights, my friend. So a couple of follow-ups on that. Uh, a quick one is, are you open to other investors? If someone wanted to get in on that opportunity, is that something that you're closed? Or are you welcoming? And if so, if you're opening, how do you find you? At the moment, we are closed. Yeah. Uh, you have my, my uh, email is alan yep. at primetimepartners.com. We will probably be starting a new uh, fund next year. Uh, I'd be shocked if it goes over $100 million. Uh, we're going to try to keep it between 50 and 100 because we really don't want to get we don't want to get caught up with having yeah. it. and plus the fact that uh, in this particular area there aren't a lot of mature companies around where you want to put in large sums they're they're mostly what we're finding out a lot of young innovators uh, companies uh, yeah innovating and uh, most everybody we back not everybody gets into it because they've had a brother, a father, a mother, an uncle, a husband, who has had some problem and yeah. they've come to realize the problems that and the needs of uh, older people. And uh, it says, you know, they so they start a business. So there's been a lot of startup activity at yeah. early stage investments as opposed to mature investments. Yep. So the other, that makes perfect sense. So we'll keep you in mind there. Uh, two follow-up questions relates to your education, the other to your parents. I, I'm in the fifth chapter of your book, which I'm very much enjoying. It's a, a lovely read. Um, but you talk early on about your mother's influence over you. And one sort of mantra that she taught you in trying to digest the newsreels and the more complex issues of the day, the war and stuff, was, uh, is it good for the Jewish people or is it not good for the Jewish people? And you say in your book, you use that to this day sometimes for levity, but also just practically speaking. I love that. I also loved my mom and she spoke common sense, things like that, too. But can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Actually, uh, Toby was my grandmother. Uh, my, grandmother. Mother, my mother was born. He uh, no, she came over so young that she spoke English. My grandmother uh, was, you know, spoke Yiddish and Russian. I guess she spoke German uh, and she really struggled with the language. And I remember taking, as I say in the book, I'd take her to the movies on Saturday. We had to sit through double features twice, uh, but it was during the war. And so you, you would confuse her with everything that went on. You know, she didn't quite get it all. And you'd tell her about the headlines and what, you know, uh, the so-and-so crossing the Rhine, uh, patent, whatever. And so she would say, all I want to know is it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? Because in you know people who came 
from Europe like that. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. the context because they lived a life that everything was bad for the Jews. So right. it helped to explain to her. So what you're referring to is I use it for humor, but I have to tell you, it resonates. I just used it the other day when I was at a meeting that that's dealing with the ratings and reviews for uh, purchasing officers. And they went through the most complicated explanation about what was happening and who they were selling to and what and what they were going to buy and what the price. And I said, all I want to know, is it good for the Jews or bad for the Jews? And it's kind of a shortcut saying, you know, just, uh, give me give me the straight answer. Should I be happy uh, or, 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 or concerned? It's when I don't understand something, I use that. And yeah, it allow, allows people to have a little humor and go along with it and understand. You can, you can translate, Megan, is it good for the Protestants or bad for the Protestants? It has yeah, nothing to do with religion. Good for democracy no. or not. We'll come back nothing to do, has nothing to do with religion. Some Jews, you know, are persecuted. So Now, the other question, as I said, I'm born in Ohio, not raised there, but I'm a Buckeye, proud Buckeye. Um, I want to ask you to compare and contrast your experience at this great land-grant university in the Midwest with your Ivy League business school experience. I know you're a trustee at the uh, Columbia Business School and your wonderful granddaughter Nina is about to start there. Um, there are pros and cons wherever you are, right? But do you have any sort of sort of 30,000 foot perspectives on comparing and contrasting those two types of institutions? I don't want to overdo it, I would, but they are different. I mean, going to a Big Ten school is an experience and it was one of the things that I enjoyed about it. it was so different than, you know, New York. Uh, you know, I, I went to prep school called Horace Mann and, you know, we wore ties and jackets every day to school. And uh, I can assure you, and I, that habit stuck with me. So when I went to Ohio, I wear a tie and jacket. So it stood out a little bit, uh, not <laughs> that much, but, you know, uh, Friday night bonfires, uh, marching bands. Uh, uh, I'd say there's a much more casual uh, educational style in terms of, you know, everything as, uh, academically. I mean, it is a state school and it has, I don't know what it is today, 80 or 100,000 yeah. people. It's, it's got to be different. I mean, Columbia, I, I, I only can talk in the context of the business school. It's a very disciplined environment and uh, you know, academically s s stressful, or uh, you really have to be, be concerned and put the time in. And uh, I guess for someone lived from Ohio coming to New York, uh, they have that New York experience, which is totally different than Columbus. Yeah. Uh, so I like Columbus. I like living and having that informality. And I like everything I just described about it. But I, I, for me, it was a diet that, you know, I I went through uh, Ohio State in three years. Three years was enough, uh, but I don't, I don't regret it. And as I say to everybody, when they're all uptight about what college they're going to go to, uh, it really, you know, after the first four or five, six years, uh, it becomes much less important yeah, yeah. Uh, early on. But, um, you know, it's interesting, Toby. I tell this story every time I go to a dinner party or I'm with a group of people and you sit around. And where did you go to school, Toby? Well, I actually went to Columbia for graduate school and Penn and a small okay. college in Virginia. Nothing what? in the Midwest. No, no, no. Which which one in Virginia? Uh, Hampton City College. It's okay. a small. Okay. All right. No, you'll be. It fits my point. You go around at the table and they say, "I went to." 
uh, Columbia, I went to Harvard, I went to Antioch, I went to Hampton, Sydney, I went to Wisconsin, I went to Ohio State. Every time the same thing happens. How come you went to Ohio State? <laughs> they, they, they won't say about any other school in the world, except no matter where I go, it's so anathema to New York. It's New York. I mean, I'm sure they don't, they certainly wouldn't say that in Ohio, but uh, you could go to Michigan, Wisconsin, Northwestern, they have no, they, they have no response. Yeah. Ohio State gets well, a response. Yeah, I will say of the Midwesterners, uh, they are just genuinely nice people, I think. I don't think it's the most descriptive adjective, but I do think Midwesterners are nice. I, like you, sort of prefer the metabolism of New York, but... Anyway, I want to shift to another topic, which is you have been involved in uh, many things, including politics throughout your career. You have a fantastic endorsement from Bill and Hillary Clinton in your book, uh, No Red Lights, as, a, as someone who's also helped on their campaigns and stuff. I, I just wonder, what do, you, what do you say to listeners about the role of citizens in democratic politics, and what have you learned? Uh, oh, we have a... Uh a uh, bifurcated audience here. I mean, we're going to talk about Democrats versus Republicans. I just admire you and your children, your sons too, that I know are very actively involved in getting, putting their energy and their money and their words around candidates. And I think that's part of the democratic process. Yeah, I would say- The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I'd say the family is a, are Democrats. This is a Democrat family. But uh, what No Red Lights, my book is somewhat about is about living an eclectic life and living it fully. That's the message. And it, it, it has resonated with older people to say, there's another chapter in your life still ahead. If I could start a business at 72 and then another one at 85, you know, yeah. if you're retiring at 60, forget about Florida and fishing and golf and think about how you could do something either similar to what you did before or something brand new. Uh, and if you're younger, I say to people, I say it in the book, it doesn't say it, it but it comes out, you know, live an, live an eclectic life. Live, you know, don't get stuck behind your desk and just be a venture capitalist or an investment banker or a lawyer or a doctor. You know, taste other things. Taste theater, taste books, taste taste uh, uh, music, taste politics, taste international living. Uh, and that's where politics came in. I try, you know, you know, Toby, I'm going to Burning Man. Uh, <laughs> in a few weeks. Uh, I'm going, people all ask me why I'm going. I'm going because it's there. You know, why do people climb Mount McKinley? I mean, I, 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 I'm curious to see what it's like. And after that, I'm going to uh, to the uh, New York City Marathon. I'm going to walk, jog. I, I ran it five times when I was much younger. I cannot run it anymore. But why am I doing it? Because I want to see if I can do it. Yeah. And so for younger people, I've, I mean, I've gotten a lot of responses back uh, from older people who then tell me how it also was great for their kids, not their young kids, but kids who are trying forming their careers and, and telling them before you get stuck in a hole you know and politics fits into that you know get yourself involved get yourself involved locally yeah. get yourself involved federally get involved with civic organizations uh, philanthropy try you know get start collecting art start you know to do make your life interesting and i i've lived uh, led, led a very interesting life which is why i wrote the book 
Yeah. Well, I actually think you and all of your family members who I know, there's a common denominator of service. And I don't mean in an arrogant or elitist way, but just you, you certainly love and take care of each other, but you also aspire and help at a higher level your communities. And I think that concept of service, whether you're getting involved in political races or philanthropic activities, we'll talk a little bit about your cultural stuff. I, I'm with you. I think it leads to a much fuller life. Uh, and it also is much more fun. So let's talk a little bit about your venture capital. You have done this so well through the years. You've had your failures too, and you talk a little bit about it in the book, but do you have any lessons that you've divined or a, sort of a mantra that runs through your mind when you're assessing a possible investment opportunity? Is, there's some things that just say to you right away, ooh, walk away or mind the gap, or do you kind of wait and see? Sure, I think there, you know, Venture capital, to a great extent, is a is a learning apprentice business, and and it's recognizing patterns that get repeated again. So you know you you do hopefully get a little better through avoiding some of the pitfalls as you go forward. And I I have had losers. I when I wrote this book, I deliberately because I there have been lots of other books written by people similar to me. I did not want to write this book about all the successes I've had. Uh, so it, it, I deliberately want to include things that didn't work uh, or things and mistakes I made, which you correctly pointed out. I, I made the mistake of not investing in Starbucks because I was so parochial and living in New York. There were at that time in the 1980s, there were two or three Greek luncheonettes on every block. And I couldn't possibly understand how you could uh, need another uh, coffee yeah. shop in New York. And I didn't understand that if I had seen it, perhaps, which I didn't do, I learned to go and kick the tires uh, and not not based on just my personal local experience, but uh, that it was a different it was a, it was a different lifestyle that they were creating uh, that was not about sitting at a stool at a luncheon counter, counter and having your your chock full of nuts, uh, coffee and a and date nut bread. It was sitting around all day and working on your computer and socializing and a lot of other things. So, uh, but I've learned uh, to back people, hopefully have done done it before, uh, back people who have passion about what they're doing, not just doing it because someone else made a lot of money and they were they think they can do it also. Uh, to try to come up with ideas that have some kind of protective barriers around it, uh, you know, it's a firewall or whatever that doesn't, uh, it doesn't make them vulnerable to being put out of business the next week with a competitor. Someone who can mobilize a team who mm -hmm. they had us inspire, who perhaps they've worked with before, which yeah. I think has a, a certain value to it. Uh, certain people who understand the economics of the business. You'll find a lot of people who start businesses today, uh, and for a long time, don't really look at how do you make money in this business? And, uh, you know, without having to go back to the well uh, multiple times and keep diluting yourself and your investors and, and yep. uh, uh, think there's an open spigot, but rather try to contain it, reduce the dilution and try to uh, build a company without a heavy dilution and, and uh, uh, without multiple rounds of financing. So I, I think that... Uh, uh, you, we still make mistakes all the time, uh, but uh, hopefully we can see where someone 
uh, has that certain kind of charisma or magic uh, that and an experience factor. Yeah, a little bit of a gut factor, I imagine. You know it when you see it after so many years of doing this, one would hope. Um, Alan, a bit, shifting gears a bit, um, the business roundtable, Jamie Dimon, Larry Fink at BlackRock, we talk about purpose and profit and they're being more and more seen as inextricably linked, looking at more than just the shareholder when looking at stakeholders. How do you, how do you factor that in, if at all, in your investment choices? It's, it's clearly here to stay in my mind, but that doesn't mean it's for everybody. And I wonder how much credence you give to this. Well, let me give you, uh, I'll give you long answers. Let me give you a kind of broader answer. Uh, when we started Primetime, we honestly thought we're, we're profit motive. Let's, I don't want to mistake. Yep, yep. On the other hand, we felt, we really sincerely felt what's, why we wanted to become thought leaders, that there had to be more thought and focus on the uh, aging generation and that there wasn't enough attention to the fact that you have a lot of people who are getting older and they need services and they should uh, forget this ageist uh, uh, mental attitude. I mean, we've gotten rid of classism, we got in feminism now, let's, you know, let's get rid of ageism and realize that there's an enormous amount of talent around. So we were, so I would say we had a social motivation in the back of our mind. My, Secondly, my former partner at Apex, uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, is yes. probably the leading Man. person in the world today in impact investing. Uh, mm -hmm. He's chairman of the G70 activity. And uh, so I've become very exposed to what he's trying to accomplish and have been supportive of that. And, and Apex is now about to set up its first impact investing fund. Plus, you know that my... Uh, Son, you know, I think all three of my sons, my son Jonathan, has just formed a firm called uh, Athletes Unlimited with uh, Jonathan Soros, George Soros' son, huh? who financed it. And they're, they are really a uh, social motivated impact fund where they have set up uh, a concept to support professional women athletes uh, in various sports and to not build teams. Uh, but to build up stars, individual stars, uh, they call it, it's called Athletes Unlimited. And uh, it's a mission-driven company uh, that has capped its, re its return for the investors, uh, which is very unusual. It's a B corporation, which is unusual. And it's brought in uh, investors who are socially motivated and not just out solely for profit. It's made the women shareholders. Uh, it, the women are on the board. Uh, yep. it, it is a company formed with a mission. So uh, between Jonathan's activity, between Ronald Cohn's activity, between APAC's activity, my own activity, I, I, I have a fair amount of you know, involvement in, in what's going on. And uh, I think it's, it's the wave of the future and all young people coming out of college. I mean, they only want to do green. They only want to do things that are going to help society. Yeah. So uh, there is a tidal, there's a tidal wave. 
Yeah, you're a believer, I think, which is great. Uh, uh, last question for you, my friend. I love in the chapter in the book you're talking about, you did try to go to Woodstock. The car broke down. You had to be towed back with, I think, Betty, your first wife. I don't even know if you were married then, but it was yes. 1960. Um, no, 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 no. That was with, no, it was with Susan. My, Susan, uh, right. They passed away. It was 1969, and we got married in 70, so we were dating in 69. And she I was, was, yeah, I was once at dinner when she was further along in her uh, Alzheimer's, but she was a lovely woman. Um, so I have fun visions of you two on the West Side Highway going up to Woodstock and then having to turn around. But I somehow feel like uh, this trip to Burning Man for you is a variation on that theme. And my question to you is, uh, is not music one way to get our nation together again? When you think about how different folks from different walks of life will come together for a Burning Man or for a Woodstock. There's, there's so much more we have in common, I think, than not. And I wonder if you share that view or not. I'd be happy to hear it either way. You know, you know Toby, that is a very original thought. I have never heard anyone say it, but as you, I, I think quickly, and as you say it, it really makes sense. I mean, when you think about, when you go to a, uh, a, a concert, Coachella or, or you know jazz festival or burning uh, there people coming together from different walks of life yep. uh, uh burning man in particular is yep. no money is exchange no anything you are gifting you are you are uh, you are you are nobody uh yep. uh but even in a concert world uh, the richest person in the world could be sitting next to the poorest person in the world. So it is an equalizer and everybody shares an interest in music uh, uh, equally. So it's an interesting thought you're bringing up. Maybe we should have a lot more music concerts to bring people together. Instead well, of I'll also, I have to give a shout out to your wonderful son, Mark, and his wife, Martha, a radical, radical Dolphins fan. He you know, sports is the other one I come to. I do a lot of fundraisers as you do. I work with candidates. And my question these days is always, how are you going to bridge this nation back together, whoever wins, right? Like, that's where we need to be going. So I think sports, music are ways to do it. But I, I, I'm really excited to hear about your trip to Burning Man. I hope you'll come back afterwards and share some of your, your uh, tales. And uh, I will also uh, share my tips to you offline. <laughs> Thank you, and I hope all your listeners or watchers buy the book, uh, No Red Lights, and uh, uh, you know, I hope, look forward to getting comments. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, again, today we've had on The Caring Economy, Alan Patrickoff, the pioneer of venture capital, as well as the author of the new wonderful memoir, No Red Lights, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, Alan, did you do a recorded version of the book? Uh, it's on Audible as well. As well, good. Yeah. So ladies, gentlemen, read the book and Alan, please come back. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.